Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Shaq, one of the pastors here at Garden City Church. Um, just want to give a quick shout out. I don't know if she's in the room. Zaina, just thank you. That, that's, that was... Um, yes, thank you. Um, I know when we first started, it's just kind of like we all kind of was like here, and eventually we came from here, and I'm seeing different hands, expressing hands, and it feels so good to, to worship expressively together. And I'm thankful for Shana and her team and her ability to help us encounter God um, with corporate worship. Um, these these days of worshiping and adoring God has become more sweeter, more richer, and valuable for me. Considering all the violence in our world, the unrest in our cities, there is this hospitable place of safety at the feet of Jesus. I find much peace and assurance at the feet of Jesus, um, but besides the peace and assurance being present in worship, my per persuasive sinfulness too becomes evident when contrasted with the radiant holiness of God. It's the trust systems. I like that word Dennis used last week. It's the trust systems I built and relied on, my hidden fears and the functional saviors I substitute for what only God can provide. A particular idol for me, um, I'm going to kind of reveal a little bit of my life, personal life to you. I know a lot of pastors don't do this, but I'm going to do it first. Um, a particular idol for me is the idol of human approval human praise. And there is no better place to feed that idol as the place in front of a large crowd each Sunday. Yeah. The unspoken pressure, your eyes are looking at me for 30 minutes, telling me to perform, to get Jesus right, to look smart, to be sound with my theology, it's pressure. It's the need to seek your approval and to seek your praise. I'm not sharing this idol to create an opportunity for self-righteous pity or to increase my hunger for more approval and praise. I'm sharing this with you to say that we all worship something. We all value something a little more than Jesus, maybe even more than Jesus. But I have a serious question to ask you. This is something that you can reflect on. How often do you consider what is competing for your heart's worship? How often? Do you consider what is competing for your heart's worship? I want you to hold on to that question and reflect on it as we walk through our study of Acts and Paul's missionary trip to Lystra. The story begins in Acts 14, starting at verse 8 and stopping at verse 20. 
I'm going to say what Dennis said. I'm not going to preach all of it. I wish I can. That's kind of like my style of doing verse by verse, but I'm not going to preach all of it. And I'm going to preach some of it, but not all of it. So if you have your Bibles, as all Christians typically have their Bibles on them, on our phones, I encourage you to follow along with me. So on this first missionary trip, Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the gospel in Cyprus, Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium. In each of the cities, they begin preaching in synagogues and encounter both openness and resistance among Jews and Gentiles. In Lystra, however, there is no mention of a synagogue. Every city in the Roman world had they had they had to have ten or more adult Jewish males, and this was permitted, they were permitted to have a synagogue. This was the policy for Jews. If a city had less than 10 adult Jewish males, they had to go elsewhere. And so Paul and Barnabas, when they fled to Lystra to preach and couldn't find a synagogue, had to switch up their strategy. As a person like me, it just makes me uncomfortable when I have to change my strategy. They walk over to a marketplace and Paul begins preaching. It's not the typical guy who's downtown Pittsburgh with signs that says, repent and believe, repent or burn in hell, but he's preaching. And this is the first time that Paul and Barnabas had to encounter a crowd of Gentiles who don't know Israel's God. Since Paul is believed to be fluent in Hebrew and Greek, many Greeks can understand him. One person, to be exact, can understand his Greek. It's a lame man from birth who was listening to Paul's preaching. Now, the lame man wasn't just preaching or listening to Paul. He was staring at Paul. We know as church folks, to listen to the pastor and look at the pastor is hard for us, right? So we can learn something from our brother in Lystra. The lame man needed something from Paul's preaching. There was something about the person of Jesus that struck his attention. Maybe a healing, maybe some hope. And Paul, being filled with the Spirit, noticed him. Just because Jesus declared does not mean Jesus disappears from the pages of Acts. His spirit is still driving the story and leading Paul and Barnabas on their mission trip. So Paul was looking at this lame man and saying, oh, you, you, you listen to my preaching? You nod your head, you taking notes, okay? But it wasn't just mutual recognition. Luke says this, Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. This is clearly the spirit moving in Paul. Like how do you even describe those words? He had faith. He saw that he had faith to be healed. I don't know if I can describe someone who I'm looking at 
to see that they had faith to be healed, but Paul did. The Spirit is clearly creating a divine opportunity to demonstrate a miracle by inviting Paul to see something much richer and more expansive than in, that includes the onlookers. The Spirit's heart wasn't only to meet the lame man condition, but he too saw wayward children lacking a clear path towards their creator. His goal was to show his love for those who sense divine presence but do not know God's name. This is much like the story of Peter and John at the beautiful gate in Acts 3. Like Peter and John, Barnabas and Paul encounter a man lame from birth. Like Peter, Paul looks intently at the lame man and commands him to stand up. In both stories, the lame man does not stand but leaps up and begins to walk. But at this point, on Paul's trip in Lystra, the stories separate. In Acts 3, the people are filled with amazement and wonder, which provides Paul, or Peter, an opening to proclaim the gospel, that the healing happened through the name and power of Jesus. In Acts 14, when the man leaps up and begins to walk, things take a dramatic turn. The people who saw the lame man realized what the Spirit had done responded to their cultural presuppositions. They shouted in their own language this, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they call Zeus, and Paul they call Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeves to the city gate because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. When I read that, I was like, no, Lystra, you're missing the point. You're totally missing the point. But I was reading this, I took a moment to pause, so let's Pause for a moment here because things just got weird. Foreign people are shouting. A priest makes multiple animal sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are unaware of what's happening. What exactly is going on? I had questions about this section of scripture. And some of the questions up was, why did the crowds respond this way? Why did Lystra, what did Lystra actually see Paul doing? Was there something off in Paul that happened that helped the locals to identify and acclaim him as a god? Verses 8 through 10 offer us four clues to suggest a positive response. The first one is Paul comes to Lystra as a stranger. The second is Paul's stare. The third is his loud voice. The fourth is his command to the cripple. Little attention is given to these verses because we think there can possibly be nothing here. But something can't be found if only if we are patient to ask better questions about the text. Through my questions, I learned that some scholars say that the stare 
and loud voices were often used in Roman stories about the coming of the gods, along with the fact that Paul was a stranger as gods were said to be appeared unknown. That revelation was astonishing to me. It helped me better understand the motives of the Lyconian people. We must understand that the Lyconian people had zero recollection of Israel's God. They had no Mosaic law or prophets. They had no workshops, no seminars of who God was. They only knew how to serve Greek gods. They had no understanding of Jesus. I understand when two strangers, Paul and Barnabas, come into your city, they behave like your gods by staring, shouting, commanding, and performing miracles. And it confirms your understanding that you must be in the presence of Zeus and Hermes. All of this is what they remember. All of this is what their ancestor told them when Zeus and Hermes visit Lystra in the past, that their gods sought to get hospitality from their city, but only two Lyconians, Philemon and his wife Bucchus, have been kind to them and entertained them. So the gods became angry with them and destroyed them, but gave special blessings to Philemon. This is not Philemon from the Bible, a different Philemon and his wife Bocchus. Again, I understand when two strangers, Paul and Barnabas, come into their city, they want to make sure that they receive and welcome and worship these Greek gods because they don't want to make the same mistake twice. This is why the Lystrian people are responding this way. And since there, because, since there was a, a language barrier between Paul and these people, it apparently takes some time for Paul and Barnabas to recognize what has actually happened. But when the priest from the temple of Zeus comes and he and the crowd want to offer sacrifices to them, Paul and Barnabas understand what is now taking place. They tear their clothes not as a gesture to express a lament. They tear their clothes to prevent the crowd from committing blasphemy. Paul shouts, friends, why are you doing this? We are only human like you. How easy it is would be to accept this worship to stand in front of a bunch of people and the crowds come after you and to use that praise to promote yourself. See, if Satan cannot derail Christian faith by persecution, he will try praise. But Paul doesn't bite the bait of human praise and worship. He doesn't equate himself with the divine. Paul knows he has been joined, but from God's side and not his own. He knows his position as a servant to the master. Therefore, Paul needed to clarify the difference between the divine presence of the Spirit 
and the spirit of man. Paul needed to clarify the difference between counterfeit gods and Israel's God. See, we can learn something from Paul here too often in Christian spaces and outside in Christian spaces. Too often we confuse our presence with the presence of God. Too often we approach a need and identify ourselves in the same role as Jesus. We say often when we move into an urban neighborhood, oftentimes we say, they need us. Without us, they'll perish. We call that the white savior complex. Jesus' presence is big enough to reach people that we don't know. Because there's only one hero in the Bible. There's only one savior in the Bible. There's only one atonement in the Bible. And there's only one seat in the kingdom. It's not our seat. See, God is not like us. We need to hear that because everything is towards us a lot. God is not like us. And we are not like God. We bore his image. He doesn't bear ours. Say it again. He, we bore his image as people of God made in his image. He invited us to be a part of his image. He doesn't bore our image. See, even in the midst of this chaos, Paul finds an opportunity to bear witness, tailoring his message to his Gentile audience. He says, we are bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not let himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain. It's raining today, church. From heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. If you read this carefully, it's such a play on words. And here's why. Since Hermes was the Greek god associated with the planet Mercury, okay, we all know Mercury, and Zeus, the king of, of all the gods, was associated with the planet Jupiter, we know planet Jupiter, Paul is essentially saying that the God of the universe, Israel's God who is living, sovereign in his provision to his creation and supreme in his authority over all creation, including the planets, is the person that is worthy of our worship. See, we don't think about the planets or maintaining them or managing them, but Jesus is the one who is God over all creation, over all the planets. To hear Paul's words may have little to no reaction to us. 
For Gentiles, their gods meant everything to them. Our gods mean everything to us. But Paul's direct words were like cuss words to the ears of Lystra. Paul calls the worship of Zeus and Hermes empty and worthless. He tells them, your gods don't lead you to true life and abundance. So turn from those worthless things. But sadly, with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. But what about us? What worthless things do we worship? What are the worthless things that we mistaken for Yahweh? And how often do we consider what is competing for your heart's worship? We may not carve idols or bow down to any statues or altars, but worshiping counterfeit gods is as much of a struggle today as it was for Lystra. We too live in a city where the persuasion to worship everything but God competes for our time, our affections, our loyalties, and our ambitions. Another name for these idols could be known as trust systems. We said that word last week, that it was a really good word. This concept should be familiar to us from Pastor Dennis. And he talked about the practice of solitude, and as most of us practice it, those things, those gods come up, and one of those gods for me was human praise. But to name a few possible idols we worship is the idol of self, the idol of security, the idol of approval, the idol of money, the idol of political power, and the list goes on and on and on. And again, we all worship something. And as people of God, it's not like we don't love God. We love God in our hearts. We tasted his pleasures and experienced his goodness. We sing about him in church. We raise our hands and proclaim his faithfulness. We know we can't be happy outside of Jesus. We know that there's nobody better than Jesus. We know that there's life and freedom in Jesus. We know discernment helps us identify and describe the appearance of our idols. And we know the harm of how they can control and manipulate our lives. And yet, there's this reality that there's this real pull from inside us towards something else that God prohibits. It's idol worship. God hates our idols. He is a jealous God. Again, this is why it's so important to identify your idols, not to feel bad about yourself and say, I'm sinful, such a horrible person, or to feel good about yourself and say, yes, I'm, I'm spiritual, I did my discipline today, but to discover how repentance removes them. But we know repentance is not our favorite subject in church. It's not the most fun thing to talk about because it actually makes us want to change. 
but I think it's necessary for our transformation. Our worldly comforts need to be threatened. Say that again as Christians in America. Our worldly comforts need to be threatened. We need to be challenged to change. Too often we leave church services and we mark it down in our head and say, yo, that was a good sermon. Kind of go on my day, watch the Steelers play today. They might lose, they might win. We feel a little bit of energetic and inspired and challenged. And we leave and we do nothing about it. We feel conviction, but we do nothing about it. We come back next Sunday and that was it. Because the real reason is we struggle with repentance. We struggle because our new saviors make promises to provide us with meaning or worth. Ways in which we will achieve wholeness. And we don't like giving that up. But these self-made idols also threaten us, warning us if we do not serve them, our lives will be worthless, meaningless, and empty. And we definitely don't want that either. And so we negotiate and we transfer our trust from Jesus to our idols. We transfer our trust because we believe Jesus isn't enough. We don't believe he's all we need or worthy of our worship. But what if repentance is much more than saying sorry or escaping hell? I was talking about this with Ruth yesterday about like, I, there's a part of me that likes the fantasy of what ifs. I don't know, I'm that type of person. But I was like writing this, I'm like, what if repentance is so much more than the guys who stand on the street and say it's repent and believe, repent or burn, or saying sorry? What if there's actually good fruit in our relationship to repentance? The fruit to experience God's promise of returning home. The fruit of abiding in the richness and everlasting worship of God the fruit of being restored in relationship to a God who loves us. Friends, this is what Paul offers to Lystra, and this is what Jesus offers us today, a gospel that demands our worship and the roadmap back home where we, when we stray away to other lovers. So, like Paul, I bring you good news, telling you to turn away from your worthless idols to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations, he let you go your own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness to you by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seas. He provided you with plenty of food. Some of us have ate good today or will eat good today and filled your hearts with joy. So turn from your 
worthless things because Jesus is better. Jesus is worthy of our worship. And Jesus is enough for us. I struggle with this a lot. Because as I was writing this, I wanted to write the perfect sermon. I wanted the clapping. I wanted the approval. And I can att- Dennis can attest to this. When I leave from preaching, I usually, when I'm like, the preaching is good, I'm up here. I'm like excited. And when the preaching is down here, I'm just like, I didn't, go- I didn't do a good job. But really, apart from that, I can still worship God. I can still believe the fact that I am enough, you are enough, in Christ. And that's the good news, that we can turn away from our worthless things and turn to God because he will meet us there with a, a provision of love, a provision of care and truth. So let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we have turned our ways against you. We have went to different roads. We have tasted the ways of the world. And sometimes, God, we like those things. We serve those things. And we keep those things. God, I pray that you would teach us the beauty of repentance, the beauty of returning home to you, the beauty of confession, the beauty of worship that goes way beyond just singing. So Jesus, we we ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you would cleanse us. In Jesus' name, amen.